The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City. All right, please stand with me for the reading of 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 7. Now, in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise, a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another, except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, otherwise Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all people were as I am, but each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another has that. This is the word of the Lord. Sup, fam? Woo. This is a fun one this morning. Pastor Matt, it's not too late. You take this? You got this, right? <laughs> oh, man. Welcome to the Burbank location of Story City Church. We are so glad that you guys are here. We want you to know that your story is not only welcome, but your story is a part of God's story for Los Angeles, for the Valley, for California, for the world. My name is Jared. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here. It is an honor. Uh, we are a family of churches that is sold out for both church planting, for foster care and adoption, and to be a church that knows, loves, and serves the neighborhoods that we call home. And so uh, if you didn't hear, this week we turned seven years old. Yeah. And uh, we are blessed to have our founding pastor, Matt Lawson and Laura Lawson here and the family. So can we just give them a round of applause? Thank you, guys. You guys have no idea. None of this would exist if they hadn't sacrificed so much. And so we are deeply, deeply grateful for their time here. Personally, I am thankful that I've gotten to know you guys. And, uh, and I, I, I can't tell you how... Uh, how big the shoes are to fill when you're walking around the national convention. There's, you know, 15,000 people there and people are like, hey, you're, you're Jared. I'm like, weird. How would you know me? They're like, oh, you took Pastor Matt's place. <laughs> We're watching. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's great. Um, hey, but we have something else we want to celebrate. And I think you'll understand how this goes in line with what I'm talking about. That uh, this church doesn't just exist as this church. This church also is a continuation of a church that was here before, Fellowship Church of Burbank. This church also exists as a part of the Granada Hills, First Baptist Granada Hills, which is now Story City, Granada. And so we stand on the legacy of those who have gone before us. If you don't know, there are many, many, many pastors. Family, this is my 21st year in ministry. There are very few pastors I started with that are still in ministry. And so uh, we have a, a guest today. He's going to be mortified that I'm going to do this to him. But Pastor Ray Grubb, Somar has just retired after 30 plus years of ministry. Can we just give Pastor Ray a huge round of applause? Thank you for all that you've done, Pastor. It is not an insignificant thing, sir. We see you and we appreciate you. Thank you. If you get a chance, the man has impeccable style. He's got some incredible suspenders on. Give him a hug. <laughs> Tell him thank you for all of that. 
All right, well, speaking of good times and anniversaries, today's sermon is entitled Aligning with God's Heart for Healthy Marriages. Uh, We're going to be having fun talking about marriage, using sex as a weapon, husband and wives owning each other's bodies, you know, all the easy stuff to deal with. I'm like, I've been gone. For those of you guys don't know, we were in Costa Rica shooting a documentary. Uh, Then uh, Josh and Samir and I were in San Juan Capistrano doing some church planting stuff. And then we were in Israel, and then the whole team was just in Phoenix. So I'm not even sure what time zone it is, let alone how I'm going to teach on this this morning. So bear with me. The four of you who are left after this week's message are going to really enjoy uh, next week's stuff. It's going to be good. Um, We're going to skip the second half of chapter 7 today. We're going to deal with verses 1 to 7, but don't worry, we're going to come back to that when we talk on singleness and divorce in a couple weeks. But let's go back and remind ourselves of today's scripture. And previously, we stood to honor God's word. I won't ask you to do that again, but I will ask you to prepare your hearts to hear the scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit written through the Apostle Paul directly to our hearts from God This morning it says this, now in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another, except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all people were as I am, but each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another that. All right. All the fun stuff. I got all the feels this morning. Um, Look, as a reminder, Paul writes this letter to the church in Corinth, Uh, as a a result of a letter that they had written to him asking for clarification, asking for some help, understanding how the gospel applied to their life. Now, they didn't grow up in Judaism, and so the church in Corinth has really struggled with trying to add Jesus to the culture they already have. Uh, Corinth was much like Los Angeles. It was an up-and-coming city. It was a wealthy city, and yet it was built on the backs of those who were not wealthy, and so there is this really uh, tension between kind of what's happening there culture-making, culture-producing city. They're very self-sufficient, self-reliant. They are self-promoting. So a lot of things we have in common with the church in Corinth. But additionally, Paul writes this letter because he has some people who have gone to visit the church, and they're like, hey, this place is in disarray, complete chaos. Something needs to be done. And so Paul goes and writes this letter to them, uh, uh, kind of prepping them for the time that he can get to them and deal with these things in person. Now, we don't know the exact context of the question that they wrote to Paul, but we know that this first part of the question relates to be sex, uh, relates to sex, and is sort of a when and where and how does this work inside of marriage part deal. Uh, Paul has already dealt with this partly as he clapped them for their belief that they had taken grace to the next step when they're letting the dude sleep with his mom and they're bragging about it. And Paul is like, you guys are not understanding this. You don't have this right. That's not the logical next step. That's the next step maybe in society, but that's not the way that God's kingdom works. God's kingdom is totally different. In God's kingdom, healthy community requires healthy accountability, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. So what is this passage really about? For those of you taking notes today, this is the big idea for today. 
The big idea is that a healthy marriage is meant to mirror Jesus. A healthy marriage is meant to mirror Jesus. We're going to see how a healthy marriage is a reflection of Jesus' humility, a reflection of Jesus' intentionality, and a reflection of Jesus' sacrifice. Those are the things we'll see from this passage today from Paul. Now, we could spend a ton of time talking about Jesus' radical sexual ethic, uh, but Paul places this specific conversation into a specific part of marriage. And so because Paul gives us this very specific marital context, we're not going to spend all the time talking about Jesus' sex, sexual ethic. I do recommend that you listen to a message he gave last year on August 15th titled A Theology of Singleness, where we talk about that. Uh, you can find that in the one-off section of our sermons on the sermon page, uh, and that will give you some context for, for the way that Jesus defines what that is. But for now, Paul has this framework of marriage that, that sort of um, defines or dictates uh, or, or uh, wraps around what he's trying to say today. And so I think it's really important that if we're going to understand what Paul's saying, and we'll get to that, then we have to understand what he means by marriage, the way that he sees and understands marriage in a biblical concept. And so he clearly lays that out in a letter he wrote to the church in Ephesus. But in that passage, he references a text in Genesis. And so we see Paul explains, here's marriage from Genesis. He's going to go into more detail in the letter to the Ephesians. And then he's going to get to the the part about sex today in the church in Corinth. So let's go back and uh, go to Genesis. Let's follow Paul so we can understand how he arrived at this location. So let's go to the very first book of the Bible. Genesis will start in chapter 2. Go through verses 18 to 24. Genesis 2, 18 to 24 says this. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird in the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of the ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man, and the man said, now we lose this in translation. This is a song. Dudes, there is nothing I can do for you. You have to be romantic and poetic because it's in Scripture. Adam did it. You got to, okay? That's what it says. This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from Man, I know it doesn't rhyme, but in the Hebrew, it makes sense. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and get this, they become one flesh. Okay, there's something really powerful about that. Let's turn to the next chapter, chapter 3, and look at verses 8 to 19, and you're going to see what happens here. Genesis 3, 8 to 19. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit of the tree, and I ate. So the Lord, gave, the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? And the woman asked, said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. 
You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And he said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pain so you will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it, for you are dust, and you will return to dust. Now, here we have the very first marriage. We have uh, God talking to Adam, and here's the deal. When God says it's not good for man to be alone, you realize that this happens before sin enters the world. Nothing is wrong. No sin had entered to this point, and God says, hey, this is still not good. And so God brings Eve to Adam for a purpose and a place, and it says what that purpose is, but I want us to notice that this instance takes care of, uh, takes, takes us to a place where there is nothing wrong yet, no sin in the world yet, before we messed up the relationship between each other, before we messed up the relationship between God, and before we messed up the relationship between us and all of creation. Everything is balanced and harmonious the way that God intended, and then, you know, humans, we messed it up. And all of it will remain broken until God reconciles it and restores it fully in his new creation. And those of you who are in any kind of relationship are fully aware of the brokenness of people, yes? Yes, if you're not, your significant other is. Trust me, they're very aware of it. Now, not every relationship is full of pain, right? Uh, Especially those in the first couple weeks. But every relationship will ultimately fail to meet our deepest needs because they're not designed to. Only God is designed to meet the deepest needs of our soul. And so our relationship with God is meant to fulfill that place reserved for and created by him. So let's go back and look at what this marriage was supposed to be look like before we mess it up. Chapter 2, verse 18 says, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. So that leads us to this place. What does Adam need help with that he cannot do on his own? Before we do that, however, I love the way the CSB translates this word, a helper corresponding to him. Now, the word helper here is not like a secretary or someone who's an assistant. The word actually denotes an equal partnership, that they are supposed to do this together. They complement or balance each other out. And we know this is how God created Eve because he pulls her out of Adam. Both are the Imago Dei the image bearers of God, reflections of who God is and how he leads and how he is. And so that's their job. They are reflections or mirrors that point back, that give glory to the living God. So what were they supposed to partner in? Well, God created this kingdom. He's the creator of that kingdom. He rules over that kingdom. And yet he set up uh, mankind as uh, uh, those who are going to lead that kingdom, those who are going to be pictures of him, a display of what he is like. And so even though he's king, humans are the representatives of him in that kingdom, and they are responsible for leading it. And so God tasked us as humans to both trust and obey him to be representations of him as we bring him glory and fame and point everything back to him. And so that's what the ideal marriage is. The ideal marriage actually accomplishes the same thing. 
It brings glory to God. It points everything back to Jesus. That's ideal. The truth is, again, we've messed this up. And so Adam and Eve rejected their calling. They rejected the job that God gave them, and they became sinful. They began to die spiritually, as would all of the world for the rest of eternity, all of their offspring. They're made to leave the garden, and the perfect relationships that existed before sin are broken. Again, the relationship between each other, the relationship between us and God, and the relationship between humanity and creation. But see, God has a plan and a promise to rescue us. The very first telling of the gospel comes in verse 15. God says, I will put hostility between you and the woman he's talking to, Satan, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This is a reference to Jesus. And so in the midst, here's the incredible thing. In the midst of disciplining humanity and cursing Satan for his role in Adam and Eve's treasonous act, God actually gives hope to them and by extension to all of us. That's what's incredible about God's love. Even, if it's, even in his discipline, it's meant to be loving. Even in the midst of his correction, there is incredible love that's happening here. God does all of this. If you ever take a look at, we're going to, but if you take a look at the, the reasons God gives those specific uh, responses to each person based on what they did, you'll find that they are incredibly loving. So God's plan, for whatever reason, includes us who are broken, this broken humanity, to partner with him to see that restoration. And so God, Jesus, who is fully God, takes on a second nature, the human, human nature, and enjoins himself forever to humanity. He becomes one of us while still being God. So God uses his church as the hands and feet and the, uh, to be messengers to the world. And so we are still called with the same calling, the same job as Adam and Eve had to be the Imago Dei, the reflections of the living God to the world around us. We are supposed to be partners who, together as husband and wife, show the nature and character of God. Now, in verse 23 and 24 of chapter 2, we see this idea of marriage as being a reunification of two beings that God brought out of one. It's a picture. It points back to God. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. And this is that key verse. This is why man leaves his father and mother. Some of you young marrieds need to do that. Leave your father and mother. And bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Now, this separate togetherness is a small picture of the Trinity. And it points to the balance that God had intended the first unified relationship to be, the first marriage to be. But our treason broke it down. And so God didn't just go, well... I guess you guys have to kind of figure it out until I get back. No, he puts some things in place. Let's look at those punishments to Adam and Eve's betrayal. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, you're more cursed than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. That's humiliation. I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. That's the foretelling of Jesus coming and conquering Satan. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. This is about work now. It's harder. It doesn't just come easy. Your desire will be for your husband and yet he will rule over you. And that one actually applies to them both. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles. You will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For 
You are dust and you are turned to dust. Now, what is it that Satan, the serpent, wanted? He wanted glory. We know that he wanted God's worship. He wanted the, the recognition of everybody else. He wanted to be put in that place. We know that from other places of scripture, we know that he also wanted the destruction of humanity, God's creation. He did not want that to exist. And ultimately, what does God tell him? God says, you cannot have the the glory that you want. In fact, I'm going to give you the opposite. I'm going to give you humiliation. And secondly, the very creation that you want to destroy, I'm going to destroy you with that. What did sin do to Eve's character? Well, Eve takes control. Before, they were equal partners in ruling the world. But now, Eve actually leads in this rebellion against God. I know, I know. You've never heard of a woman who has control issues. Never happened. Okay, so what's her punishment? Nothing is easy anymore. Childbirth is exponentially harder. And her desire will be for her husband, and he will rule over her. What did Adam want? Typical guy. What did he do? Nothing. Sat back and let it happen, right? Happy life, happy wife. It's the most unbiblical thing ever, right? He's just like, ah, just content to sit back. I know, you've never seen that in a guy either, right? Okay, so what's required of him? He now must lead his wife, and nothing is easy for him anymore. He has to actually lead, and he has to work hard for it to benefit from creation. Now, look, I'm having a little fun. I know these are generalizations, okay? I get it. What I'm trying to say is that our nature was broken, And it wasn't the way that it was originally intended. And so what I think we see is when God gives these punishments out, instead of just saying, hey, I'm going to make this worse, God is finding a way until he restores everything to actually bring things back into balance. Do you see it? If the guy really wanted to sit back and do nothing, God says, hey, I'm going to hold you accountable to how you lead now. If the girl's like, hey, I'm going to take control, God's like, hey, I'm going to make sure that that you're going to struggle, but you're going to have to do this with him leading. And so it doesn't put us into these odd places like man's ahead, woman's behind. It actually pulls us into this harmonious balance that God had intended, and we screwed up. Okay, so how does this actually work practically? Well, that's the, the exact question that people in Ephesus asked, and Paul explains in Ephesians chapter 5. Let's take a look there. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, some dudes would like to pretend that it ends there. Don't worry. The wife's section is like four verses. The husband's section is like 15 verses. So it's all going to work out. Don't worry about it. Okay? This is what it says. Because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, he's the savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands and everything. Now, guess the husband's part. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of the water by the word, He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. And then he goes back and quotes that Genesis. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh." This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. And so we see this call for the wife to trust the husband's leadership. 
but we see a mandate for the husband to lead like Jesus. They work together. If God expects the wife to trust the husband's leadership, it's because he requires the husband to be accountable for the way he and his family follow Jesus. Jesus literally gave everything for his bride, the church. He surrendered his rights and his power and the things he was owed. He set those things aside. And he did all of this without compromising his following of his father's will. In the same way, husbands, we are called to be the example to lead our families in the following of God's will. This type of rule over refers to a position of being responsible for and held accountable to, not lording it over. Husbands, we must lead like Jesus. We cannot lead as dictators, and we can't just sit back and let things happen either. We must follow Jesus' example. So, what does all of this have anything to do with 1 Corinthians today? Let's go back and look at verses 2 to 3. But because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfill this marital duty to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. Now, three weeks ago, we talked about the threefold purpose of sex and marriage. Sex is good and right and holy within the context of marriage because it helps fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, because it reflects the triunity of God by bringing together male and female separated in the creation of Adam and Eve, and it points us forward to Jesus through the sacrificial giving of self the spouse. So those are the purposes of sex. In the context of marriage, it's right and good. And this is what Paul's referring to when he talks about marital duty. Okay? Uh, hopefully, we get that there is a deep joy in getting to fulfill that instead of seeing it as obligation or duty. Sometimes that word carries a different connotation now than, than perhaps Paul meant it. But it's how we're called to do that that's the kicker. How we are called to fulfill that obligation. And so for those taking notes today, this is our first Observation for today. A healthy marriage reflects Jesus' humility. A healthy marriage reflects Jesus' humility. Looking at verses 3 and 4 can make us go, what the heck is going on here? What is Paul talking about, especially for those of us who have experienced trauma or abuse? But when we hear that our bodies don't belong to ourselves, we can put that in light of our understanding of the context that Paul explains marriage is all about. That we are, according to Genesis, supernaturally one flesh. And that even in sex, within the confines of a healthy marriage, we are actually glorifying God. And that marriage is about serving and uplifting each other as we seek to glorify God in the way that we live out the marriage covenant. Wives are to lay down their lives. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit their husbands and everything. And husbands are to do the same. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. This is a reflection of what Jesus did for all of us. Think about this for a minute. The God of all the universe enters into humanity. A God who is God of over everything. He's timeless, boundless, limitless. He puts on a human nature in addition to his God nature. Can you imagine the humility and sacrifice it took to step into something that you created? Jesus takes on this flesh in order to give it to us as the perfect and holy sacrifice, dying in our place to satisfy the wrath that God intended for us. 
We then can sacrifice to serve those around us, but especially our spouses. Again, we're talking about how healthy this is when a husband and wife are serving each other in healthy ways, not about when one person takes and doesn't give or demands that gift in an abusive circumstance. So we're clarifying that here. To live this out in healthy ways requires humility from both husband and wife. You guys with me? Good. This brings us to our second observation for today. A healthy marriage reflects Jesus' intentionality. A healthy marriage reflects Jesus' intentionality. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me again. It says this, Do not deprive one another except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. So there's a reason for it. Then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Okay? I say this as a concession, not a command. First of all, the word here, deprive, does not mean you can never say no. This passage is not saying you don't have a choice when it comes to sex with your spouse. That's not what this word means. The word deprive means to cheat out of or withhold from when it's not right to do so. Essentially, Paul is saying sex is not a weapon. You can't use it to manipulate or to, to try and get somebody to do something or to use it as a tool. That's not appropriate in marriage. This is what Paul is talking about. He says that you're not to harm one another by using this in the wrong way. Now, he goes on to concede that there are appropriate times to withhold, but only when agreed upon, and he says for a purpose. He says, like, if you're going to be devoting to prayer, essentially a time of sacrifice, or we call that fasting, in order to be more focused on what God wants to do and say in both of your lives. Now, he sums this up by saying, look, I, I'm, I'm not commanding you to take breaks. I'm just giving you a reason it would be appropriate to do so. In this context, Paul calls us to sacrifice for our spouses and to consider them as we serve them while also not using sex to harm them or to manipulate them. Again, he confirms their appropriate reasons and times to withhold, but he says do it as an agreement for a specific reason, be intentional about it, and so we see this exact same intentionality in the way that Jesus gave himself for the church. Look at verses 25 to 27 of Ephesians 5 again. Husbands, love your wives as what? Just like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. He did this, look, with intentionality, to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of the water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. Jesus gave himself to the church for the purpose of leading her to redemption and restoration. Everything he did, he did for the glory of God to bring us to a place we could have relationship once again. Husbands and wives, but especially husbands, we are called to be intentional in our marriages, to lead our spouses and our families in ways that glorify God and help to redeem the fallen world. Family, this brings us to our third and final observation for today. A healthy marriage reflects Jesus' sacrifice. A healthy marriage reflects Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus did all of this for the church and gave all of himself for us. He didn't just do it to the point of inconvenience, which many of us can't even bring ourselves to do. He, brought, he did all of this to the point of death. Death on the cross. But think about this for a moment. The church didn't exist as it does now when Jesus did all of this for her. 
Jesus knew what we would need and he led out first, allowing us a place. He made a place for us to belong even before we believed. Jesus gave us faith before we even know, knew that we needed it. He intentionally served and suffered so that we could be a part of, a, of his redemptive and restorative work. Husbands, we are called to model this intentionality first. Not when our wives have met some standard, but first, before there is a reason to, because Christ did it and now calls us to do it as well. Wives, your reciprocated intentionality then completes this model for a healthy marriage as Paul sums up in Ephesians 5.33. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself and the wife is to respect her husband. And we know this is a beautiful and healthy marriage when it's lived out in a gospel context. All right, this has been a lot today. You guys still here? You guys good? Hopefully you've hung with me. Here's a reminder of what we're taking away today. A healthy marriage is meant to mirror Jesus. I hope you've seen that. It's meant to mirror Jesus and it's a reflection of Jesus' humility, Jesus' intentionality, and Jesus' sacrifice. Let's pray. God, thank you for all that you have done for us. I thank you for all that you are doing in us, that you are a God who loves us as we're broken, as we're messed up, as we are hurting, and yet you have, Lord, allowed us to belong even before we believe. Thank you for your grace. I pray that as people, we would show more grace to each other, but especially in our relationships, especially in the marriage context, that the way that we treat each other, the way we talk to each other, the way that we model love for each other would point to you. Help us to be good reflections of you in the name of Jesus. Amen.